podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week starting from 1895. This week is 1901. I am one of your hosts, Chris Ellie, a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am your other host, Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker and film nerd in general. Um, what's our beginning banter? What do we? I feel like we should start out with banter every time, you know what I'm saying? Sure, banter is always good. Um, how you doing, Glenn? I'm fine. You know, I'm as to be expected, given the state of the of the world. Um, but in general, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm I'm fairly comfortable, which I'm nice. happy to say. I'm um, chilling as well. I'm about to go see Rocky Horror to drive in next week, uh, or not next shit. weekend, tomorrow. Uh, yeah, should be fun. Yeah, that will be very. Oh, fun. and now you made this podcast explicit again. <laughs> what? What'd I say? You said, "Oh shit!" Oh, uh, that's not explicit. <laughs> Everyone hears shit all the time. That's true, but I had a bunch of pages open on Google of all of these podcasting people going like, "What qualifies as explicit?" You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't and... think I've done very few swears, haven't I? Just one. Yeah. On the on the previous episode. Oh, whoops! I didn't yeah. even catch it. I thought I would like make a big deal out of it whenever it happened, it's fine. but I guess it. I just slipped slipped out. It whoops. was an, it was an, it was another shit. It's, oh, it's okay. not a, well, yeah. That's you could say that on cable, you know. Exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, there were all these people going like, "Oh, Apple, it, like they they crawl through it, and if they hear something, like they'll cut your podcast off, and you'll and if you mislabel it, like you'll never." You'll never be on the iTunes store again. Oh, you know? boy. Uh, so that was that kind of scared me into just marking that episode as explicit. Mm. You know, not a big deal. Uh, well, I guess that, that just gives me free reign now. <laughs> if it's going to be marked as explicit the, anyway. The gloves are off. Well, I was doing like individual <laughs> episodes. But yeah, uh, yeah. for on a per-episode basis, the gloves are off. I'm, I'm um, still surprised at how, uh, how un- uh, foul-mouthed I've been on this podcast. I feel like my norm, my general just <laughs> vernacular is usually much filthier. Mm. Well, now you can get as filthy as you want on this one. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> All piss. That's a good one. That's that's That one's pretty, that one's a pretty scary swear, though. Yeah. Alright, well, as we're starting out, we <laughs> like to... <laughs> As we're starting out, we like to uh, give ourselves a little context for the films that we're about to watch with the news from the year 1901. Take it away, Glenn. The news of the year 1901. The British colonies across Australia unite to form one country, the Commonwealth of Australia. The Colorado cannibal Alfred Packer is released from prison. Great Britain. Queen Victoria has died after 63 years on the throne. The Brits welcome their new king, Edward VII. J.P. Morgan conducts the first billion-dollar business deal for industrial steel, the first corporation of such wealth. The Boxer Rebellion ends with the Boxer Protocol Treaty. Panic of 1901. The New York Stock Exchange crashes for the first time. A strange patent is filed, an automatic sweeping machine known as a vacuum cleaner. 
Amelie Hophouse brings attention to the tens of thousands of women and children dying in British-run concentration camps in South Africa as the Boer War rages on. William McKinley is sworn in for his second term. Six months later, he is assassinated by anarchist Leon Shogos and replaced by Theodore Roosevelt. The first Nobel Prize ceremony is held in Stockholm. Old Annie Edison Taylor rides over Niagara Falls in a barrel. She is the first to ever survive the feat. And that's the news. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, a couple real downers in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I put that I put that uh, flamethrower one in there specifically because I thought you'd have fun saying Klein Flammenwerfer. No, that too much. Also, uh, who, this isn't for Elon Musk. <laughs> well, as we often do, let's start out with George Melies. In... Ah, the French. Ah, the French. Orson Welles reference. Um, yeah, I uh, he's crushing it yet again. Mm-hmm. Got some good stuff. Um, I mean, in addition, he's still doing a lot of short, short stuff. I didn't think I watched. I think I watched all of his films from this year, but I might have skipped a few that were just like very, kind of slight. He's got um, some slight trick films. Yeah, but um, he's got some some fancier, more kind of uh, impressive trick films also. Um, I guess the the big one being The Man with the Rubber Head. Yeah. Which is a great title. It is. Not the original title. It's the American title. But, right, uh, yeah. We're usually uh, referring to the, the American, or at least translated into english titles of these movies yeah though sometimes it's fun to just bust out the french i like to i like to give that to you oui. <laughs> uh so this is melier's discovering yet another effect uh and and using it to uh i don't know to, to great silliness <laughs> it, it is pretty silly um and and this is an effect that um, he kind of pioneered with this one, and then there were a couple other movies where he, I, I think, refined it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a couple other people started using this uh, new effect that he discovered um, later Every- this year. Everyone's copying George Melies, always, As all a, the time. Always, yep. Um, anyway, this movie, The Man with the Rubber Head, uh, the uh, effect that we're talking about will become evident. Uh, basically... The story of the movie is that there is some alchemist-type guy, as usual, in a Melies movie, and he uh, he picks up a living head that is his own head. Just lying around. Uh, yeah, it's a copy of his own head that's lying around. He puts it on a table that has a little uh, pike in the middle of it, or a hose, um, and he takes, um, what do you call it? The Bellows. Bellows, yeah. yeah. He takes some bellows and blows up the head and the head starts expanding and expanding until it fills up almost the entire frame uh and and then he lets the air back out again and uh and it, the head is huge it's kind of like doing its classic Melies jabbering all around <laughs> kind of motion uh and then he brings some other guy in he's like hey hey check this thing out and the other guy 
uses the bellows a little too hard and explodes the head. Yeah. Um, and so the, the effect that's happening here is that within the double exposure that he is normally doing, uh, he is zooming in, like, way in, and, uh, and making it appear that on, on one exposure, the head is filling up just the whole frame, but on the other exposure, the head is sitting inside of the laboratory, and so it looks like the head, as he zooms in and out, is getting bigger and smaller. Mm. Although cool. I think, to be uh, a film nerd and very pedantic, I don't think it's actually zooming. I think it's physically oh. moving the camera closer. You are correct. Yes. Um, which is uh, a small detail, but I, me being a nerd, I need to point it out. Um, but it, it works very well. Like, it's it's not something... It certainly requires, a, a, like most of these double exposure effects or multiple exposures, it definitely requires a lot of coordination to get right. Yeah, and He absolutely. gets it. He nails it. Like, it's very... He's very precise with it. Like, it's not... Um, you know, the head isn't, like, moving around a bunch as it's getting blown up. It, like... It really reads as it's intended to, which is it's staying in one place, but it's just getting bigger. Yeah. Watching this made me think that there must be so much Melier's test footage uh, as he's developing these effects, you know, that was just never released. I mean, most of his movies don't exist anymore, but imagine all of the kind of interesting playing around that he was doing to try and figure out these effects. Yeah, that's something, it's funny, I'd never really given a lot of thought to that, and it's very true, because it's like, anytime he introduces a new effect, or anything like that, it's it, he does it with such precision that it's he's clearly practiced it, and I think there's yeah. even bits of like interviews he's given later in life where he talks about how he had to just throw out like hundreds of feet of film because he had to perfect all the effects, he had to kind of shoot things and reshoot things until they were perfect. Um... Yeah, and a lot of this action is so precise, too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, especially because it requires synchronizing multiple takes together with each other. Yeah. Uh, there was... Um, in in the movie Hugo, which is most people's frame of reference for George Melies, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Um, I, I was re-watching some of the scenes of him shooting uh, movies... And they actually showed, like, a metronome in the studio that they were using to help them time everything. Um, And, you know, I don't know how how necessarily accurate that was, Mm -hmm. but it seems to make sense uh, for what they were doing. Especially since it's silent. You can make all the kind of noise you want. And, uh, yeah, the metronome probably would have helped a lot for, for this synchronization they were doing. Yeah, I would definitely think that they would. He'd be using some kind of, if not, you know, if not a metronome, a stopwatch, or some. He would be timing stuff pretty precisely, mm-hmm. um, in order to get it to to all work. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 wondering if that is like a uh, historical, uh, like a historical fact that he used a metronome, or if that was just Scorsese kind of taking a stab. <laughs> uh, there were a couple. And, and, you know, once he discovered this effect with The Man with the Rubber Head, there were two other, at least two other surviving movies from that year where he used that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, both of which I actually thought were a lot smoother than Man with the Rubber Head. Um, there was The Devil and the Statue and The Dwarf and the Giant. 
um, the dwarf and the giant is one, two copies of Melies and one's getting really small and the other one's getting really big. Uh, and one of the nice, the, the cool things about it is that like the, what the big copy of him sp- uh, breaks open a pillow or something and then sprinkles a bunch of fla- uh, feathers on the small one. And it, it makes the, it makes the effect. It really sells the effect. Well, mm. um, and then the devil and the statue, uh, the devil like there's a part where the devil just kind of gets all all threatening and 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 everything and so he gets big and he starts expanding and filling up like this whole space and like towering over this other person which i thought was a really good use of the effect uh rather than for just kind of uh, trick film silliness it was Mm -hmm. almost like this oh my god you know it it, it felt very imposing yeah yeah, for sure. Um, kind of a, a a funny thing about Man with a Rubber Head, I thought, was how, like, kind of like we were talking about before, how close-ups at this point are kind of treated as an effect or trick in and of, themsel- in and of themselves. So weird. <laughs> um, and this kind of feels a piece with that where, like, just the mere fact that we're seeing someone's head kind of filling most of the screen is like, whoa, a face that's really close yeah <laughs> um and i think it is one of the first times that Melias has ever really we've ever really like gotten a good kind of this isn't really a close-up technically but it's kind of the closest we've gotten to one in a Melies movie yeah yeah he he a lot of his shots i mean basically all of his shots are very pulled back very mm-hmm. uh very locked off and theatrical yeah um and a lot of the more funky camera stuff that he's doing is for the the sake of effects rather than for the sake sake of new angles i think yeah i mean pretty much the only real angle he ever does is kind of this straight straightforward like as if you're watching something on stage as if you're sitting sitting in a theater um watching something kind of happening in front of you which has the benefit of kind of showing off a lot of his choreography and kind of, um, I guess, just stage theatrical theatrical skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Because some of the effects are stage effects, stage-style effects. Um, But it does, like, we're starting to see a little bit of, of, like, more experimentation with other camera angles from other people. And so that's the one place where I feel like Melius isn't really kind of pushing the boundaries yeah yeah i mean uh you know i'm all about melies he's wonderful and i think next you know next year we're gonna be seeing yeah. his biggest and oh, most ho, famous ho, ho, ho. thing ever um but i feel like this was almost a year besides this one effect where other people started to overtaking melies in certain ways mm-hmm. um we'll get to that i suppose yeah um well i mean uh i think kind of i think it's kind of funny that uh the most interesting melies movie or the one that seems the most most interesting to me is uh one which is lost which is his uh red riding hood movie hmm. which i read about but is you know it theoretically no longer exists unless some print of it is locked away somewhere uh hidden from the world 
It could be with the way that a lot of these films are getting discovered even 10 years ago or so. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in the, for the last few years, Melies has been doing at least one kind of big multi-scene sort of extravaganza film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Cinderella or Joan of Arc. And this year he had two, but one of them was Red Riding Hood, and so it's lost. Um, and that one had, uh, according to Melies, had 12 scenes, but he tended to kind of oversell how many scenes were in <laughs> yeah. his movies. Tableaus, as he described them, and it was usually... If Cut it was, in half or so. Yeah, usually kind of, he would, he would fudge it a lot. Um, so it probably wasn't actually 12, but um, I think some of these other ones are around 6 a lot of the time. Yeah, w- um, Wikipedia said that this that Red Riding Hood was uh it, it it didn't describe the length of the movie, but it described the length of the film. Mm. And so I went into some film length to time calculator oh. on the internet. <laughs> and it's it's like 5 minutes and 40 seconds or so out of the I think 160 meters of film that it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like a really entertaining movie because, Mm. uh, by the description of it, George Melies kind of rewrote a lot of the story to add a lot more comedy, um, and changed the whole ending to where the wolf is chased and killed by the town and then roasted over a spit at like a big festival, um, while everyone dances and presumably eats the wolf. Oh, wow. You're not supposed to eat carnivores. Um, also, I think it was on Wikipedia, uh, claimed that uh, Edison stole it and claimed it was an original film because there were no international copyright laws at the time. So How was... is Edison this slimy? I, I don't mean, understand. Apparently it was legal because it was a French film and there was no international copyright, so he could just take it and just say that he made it. Um, but it does, it does definitely reflect poorly on Edison, not that we are really... <laughs> We really hold Edison in very high regard, I don't think. <laughs> he of whipping bears and unimaginative films. Yeah. <laughs> um, Melies' other big movie from this year was Bluebeard, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which I initially was thought was a pirate movie, you know? I would have figured that it was a pirate movie with a name like that. Because I don't know about you, but I have never heard of Bluebeard before. I had heard but... of Bluebeard, but I didn't really know the story. Okay, yeah. Because Bluebeard, Cinderella, and Red Riding Hood are all adaptations of Shao Pierrot fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which were changed into grim fairy tales, or adapted into grim fairy tales. Um, but... I think this Bluebeard one seemed to be more, uh, more stay, to stay more in, Fran- in France. And he mm-hmm. did these in like the 1700s or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd basically never heard of Bluebeard. Uh, and so I had to, I, I think it's interesting, you know, these, I might have mentioned it when we, when we talked about Cinderella, but these fairy tale adaptations, the benefit of doing them is that with a, silent medium where you're not taking in a huge amount of story information from the film itself having an idea of what the story is supposed to be is really helpful Mm -hmm. and so these uh these um 
fairy tale adaptations because they're they're folk tales they're well known that uh kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting in a lot of the storytelling case but it's interesting that for bluebeard like I, I didn't try to watch it without reading a summary first but that summary helped me a lot yeah uh same here i um i i knew the name bluebeard but i i didn't really know the the plot um which even just that i was kind of surprised by like how how many things that i know are clearly kind of like inspired by bluebeard um how would you say i mean beauty and the beast was the first one i thought of the whole kind of like woman goes into a castle with a spooky guy and is mm-hmm. instructed not to go into a single room uh because there are secrets in there not that he says that there's Ooh. that's the reason um but i thought you know that's that's also a french fairy tale i looked it up and it that does come later i think bluebird dates back yeah i think even before the 1700s i think more like the 15 or 1600s whereas hmm. beauty and the beast is a little bit i think is 17 something um yeah i think i think Charles perrault he um kind of amassed folk tales into commonly understood tellings yeah is how i understand it and then the the grim brothers the brothers grim ah. also i don't know we'll get we'll get to that movie eventually <laughs> uh they did a similar thing and i think some of what they did was working off charles perrault and some of it was just collating from other sources mm-hmm. um but a lot of places credit Charles Pierrot, Perrault, France. Um, I can for, I tell you right now, there's no there's no hard T in that name. There are are there any hard T's in France and French at all? Yes. Oh, I know there are, but yes, uh, because the the utmost curse word in in Montreal French is tabernacle. Is it? It is, as far as I'm I've heard. Uh, as in tabernacle, it's a kind of Christ-related thing. Oh, anyway, Bluebeard. Uh, yeah, spooky movie, very uh, very macabre. Yeah, as I is would say, Melies's way. I would say though that this is so. There's a scene in this movie. There, there. The the basic idea is that there is a rich. I don't know what you would call him, guy. Um, uh, a lord uh a lord that that works yeah uh there's a rich lord who is trying to uh get a wife from some of the other people and showing off his money and everything like that <laughs> with a, and... a big bag with like not dollar signs on it but just like uh, a big like it has like a hundred thousand written on it or something like that <laughs> yeah a thousand a million yeah <laughs> um... um and so one one guy uh gives his daughter to Bluebeard and she's not about it, definitely. Um, and he takes her home and then basically immediately tells her, like, like, hey, babe, I'm going out. Here's a big key. Don't open the door with this big key. <laughs> and... A flawless plan. <laughs> Which almost, like... I... You know, I guess I'm commenting on the the fairy tale itself, but it has some like Adam and Eve vibes with the like don't oh, telling yeah. a woman like the, don't do this, the and then like thing, yeah, yeah. Although, rather than the kind of moralizing of the Adam and Eve story, I think 
that this the story here is basically like yeah you were you were right to go in that room and check out this creepazoid secrets yeah because she goes in the room uh oh i should say that there is a an imp who tells her to go in the room played by george melies because of course melies gonna melies (laughs) uh what is it i saw uh a description of yes that uh it's, it said, the description said, her curiosity manifests itself in the form of an imp who taunts and mocks, mocks her with potential promises that the room might contain, <laughs> which, uh, he, he can't resist. I, that's um, literally what I have written in my, my notes is Melies can't resist adding an imp to this movie. I love that it used the word imp, it's, too. <laughs> it's such a, like, spooky, creepy story already. And Melies is like, no, 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 no. We will have an imp. I will play it the... must I, be silly. I will play the imp. I will dance around in little wings. Uh, He's the best. But he uh, he's wonderful. Um, And all of his imps have these, like, really long, like, antennae, kind of. And I think they're that, horns, aren't they? I guess they're supposed to be horns, but they look like antenna because mm. they're so big and floppy. You know, yeah. uh, the the devil in Devil in the Statue also had similar horns. Um, but anyway, she goes in the room, and after that silliness is over, there's some like really like horrific stuff yeah. in the room. It's his, it's the guy's seven previous hanged wives, and they're all just hanging there on nooses. Yeah, it's. It's wild. Which is, um, I mean, just that, I mean, that is, as as grim as that is, that's even, that's a step down from, I think, in the fairy tale, they're on meat hooks. Oh, wow. Um, which, I guess, Melies wasn't quite willing to go that far with it. Um, he was no, he was no, he was no Toby Hooper. That, that scene, I would say, is one of the more genuinely horrific things that i've seen so far yeah uh there there's a lot of spooky stuff but it's spooky and halloweeny it's not horror it's not you know? a- actually disturbing yeah whereas yeah. this is and, this is just yeah. a, a an unsettling sight um it also is kind of uh notable i guess in that when she first walks into the room we transition to the the set where all the wives are hanging, but it's very it's dark, and then she opens the curtains, and the light reveals the bodies hanging, which, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, is the first time that lighting has it, like there's ever been kind of a lighting reveal of like the lighting in the che- in the scene changes to reveal something. Oh yeah, unless you count the lighting in the scene darkening to reveal Santa Claus in that uh, in that oh. Santa Claus movie, um, but I not, don't think that not counts. really. No. Um, yeah. That's more of a practical concern than yeah. a story. And this is one. like I don't think the light on set changed. I think they just uh were underexposing the film and then they exposed it properly, so it appeared to kind of brighten the room. Hmm. Um but that kind of stuck out to me as like a further innovation, I suppose. Yeah. And um so she sees the wives, and I guess oh, what happens next? She she kind of goes to sleep in her bed well, and she, dreams. She drops oh. the key, the big key. Right. And I only know this because I read the description of the story. She drops the Same. key and so yeah. uh, gets blood on it and then tries to wash the blood off and it won't come off. Right, and, and, and he catches her while she's washing the blood off. Um, 
there's some scene i forget actually what order it goes in if it's if it's before he catches her or after but she she goes to sleep and she's dreaming and she has this dream it must be before he he catches her i think so um uh, she has this dream where she sees all of the really spooky ghost wives and and they are moving up through the frame in a very in, in, in a in the double exposed fashion but I, mm-hmm. I, it's there's something kind of freaky and dementor like about it mm, yeah um and uh and then there was another part during the dream actually which I could tell it was double exposure trickery, but I couldn't quite tell how it was done because it had a bunch of the keys kind of, it had a bunch of keys like dancing in the dream and taunting her. Another, another right? Melier's thing that you can't resist doing is like dancing objects. <laughs> but, but they were just keys of multiple big sizes uh, floating in the the darkness. Yeah. And I couldn't quite tell how he did it actually, because they were all moving at different rates, and they were all different sizes. And normally, if he's doing an exposure thing like that, they would kind of have to be more I think, synchronized. I think he probably made a bunch of big key props and had them on strings and kind of dangled them all in front of a black background. And then that could explain shot it. that after. So it, all the keys kind of... I think all, all the keys are... They're a single exposure. He filmed all the keys at once against the mm. black background. Mm. Um. He filmed the keys against the key. Yeah, uh, that's how I'm guessing he did it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so it ends with uh, him catching her, uh, trying to wash the blood off the key, realizing that she went into the uh, dead wife room, and then said, "I'm going to make you one of the dead wives now." Uh, but then, right at the end, uh, some some people burst through and rescue her. Uh, and they, stab him. Yeah, they they stab him. They like pin him against a wall with a sword, predator style, uh, <laughs> which was kind of fun. And then, in sort of, I think kind of changes the ending of the fairy tale to be a bit happier. Where not only does the Bluebeard's new wife survive, not getting murdered, but then all of the old wives kind of come back to life and go off with all the. <laughs> the dudes who busted in uh <laughs> to kill bluebeard and so everyone everyone gets a happy ending even all the formerly dead ghost wives retribution in the yeah. end uh did you have any more meliers you wanted to talk about or should we move on to ferdinand zeka i think we should move on to to ferdinand zeka because he's doing some some interesting stuff indeed yeah he actually did like uh, he, i think I, I actually can't f- determine at what point in the year 1901 uh, he made any of these movies, but mm-hmm. he some of the ones that he made were very simple this year, and some were very complex and very interesting. Yeah. Um, and this guy is kind of new to the scene. I think he first started in 1899 or 1900 or so, and this is actually, to me, a year where I noticed that a lot of new people were coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. Um, a lot of new people were coming out, and I, a couple of people really didn't do, that we've been talking about a lot, didn't do a whole lot. I mean, yeah. uh, Elise Guy, I couldn't find any movies that she had directed that came out in 1901. Yeah, and Lumiere's are kind of somewhat off the radar at this yeah. point. 
I, I mean, I think they're probably they're probably still making some. Actually, I did watch a, a actuality or two that they made, but it wasn't anything significant. Yeah. Uh, the significant Lumiere stuff, which I guess I can just mention right now, is that they made a 360 degree still camera, and there are a few panoramas on online of uh just the 360 degree uh views that they captured uh which were intended to be kind of projected in a big wide uh uh arena type situation cool um but that's not movies yeah (laughs) so this guy ferdinand zecca um he did this movie called what is seen through a keyhole which which we talked about a little bit a few weeks ago. Yeah. I, I don't remember if I left that in the podcast or not. But. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> we talked about it either way. Um, yeah. This movie is very often mislabeled as a film from, what, 1898, 1899? Seven, I think. Oh, dang. Yeah. Um, which, <laughs> it makes a lot more sense when watched in its proper context. Yeah, um, when when you watched it, you were pretty shocked ac- on the under the wrong title, right? Um, because it, I mean, it has edits in it. It has like different sort of. It's not that impressive of a movie for 1901, but if it had come out in 1897, it would have been incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, although it it would have been an impressive movie for 1900, even because. Last year True. was when we got the the grandma looking glass yeah. movie where these close up point of view shots were basically invented. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of just a series of them. Yeah. It kind of feels like kind of the next step up from uh, the scene through the telescope film. Yeah, um, it's much much better narrative uh, uh, contextualization mm-hmm. of what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, it's complete contextualization yeah. rather than a lot of the contextless stuff that was happening with the George Albert Smith movies last year. Um, I mean, it is maybe the first use of a like POV shot through a keyhole, which is a pretty common thing. Yep, and it's got a keyhole-shaped yep. mat. Exactly what you'd expect. <laughs> um, and much like as seen through the telescope, it is about uh, a perv who goes around <laughs> look, looking at people through things. In this case, a sort of a hotel clerk, I guess, or a guy who works at a hotel. He's like a cleaner. He's got a little brushy thing. Yeah. Um, going in and peeking in people's keyholes in their hotel rooms and seeing kind of different scenes play out in each one. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, uh, he gets beat up by a Willy Wonka-looking dude. Um, yeah he's trying to look in the last one and the guy opens the door at the same time realizes that he's a a creepo and then thrashes him so the the movie at least gives him his comeuppance for being a creepo that's true yeah i i feel (laughs) this is another common aspect that i've noticed of movies from this year in particular but movies up from this time in general Uh is that the way that a lot of them end is that somebody gets a thrashing. Yes. You know? No, yeah, that, that is that is a very common thing. Both for this year and the last several years. There's been a lot of movies that are sort of a couple little jokes and things, but they just end with someone just getting the shit kicked out of them. <laughs> um, which is very, I mean, I see why it's very enjoyable and it's very sort of climactic. It's very visual. Yeah, yeah, it's a very climactic way to end a 
one of these little short films. Um, it is often very funny, though. Yeah, it's it seems it seems natural, I guess, because a lot of these are also about scamps causing shenanigans. Yeah, there's a lot of there's like, a lot of mischief happening. Yeah, and it's like, how do you end that yeah. in a sort of poetic justice way, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or just justice in general, uh, without that? Uh, another notable thing about this movie, so so the 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 four rooms. The first room is a pretty lady that's putting on, or that's what's she doing? She's um just kind of she's like dressing, I think, um and or putting on makeup, and the guy's like, Ooh. and the second one, <laughs> the second one is a guy in drag, which is new. Wait, um, was it? Yeah, I don't think I even picked up on that. Yeah, no, it is a guy, it, it's what looks like a lady, and you think it's, oh, it's just, he's looking at ladies, and then uh, he takes out his boobs, and he takes out his, uh, or her, I guess is drag queen, right? Uh, or or trans, I don't even know. Um, she takes out her boobs, and, and then takes her uh, wig off, and it's like a bald head underneath the wig, and then he like goes he pulls back it cuts back to him and he looks at the camera like whoa what was that you know um which yeah this is like i mean it's the first like gay joke i've seen you know yeah uh, i didn't rewatch sense. this for this week so that i i don't remember it that well <laughs> um but i don't remember picking picking up on that when i watched it a few weeks ago either so i guess i, yeah, just, I, I guess i just wasn't paying very much attention it goes by quick um the third scene is two people eating or drinking champagne or whatever, and then the last one is the guy in the top hat that uh, that is mean to G- him. Gives him a thrashing. Yeah. <laughs> um. What did you watch? Any other Zeka? Movies? Yeah, I watched a, a few. Um, there was uh, one that I think I didn't watch until you uh, pointed out to me the um, drama at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, it's um, a fun one. That is a fun one. It reminded me a lot of uh, an earlier Melies film. Uh, the one yes. that the diver is going to the shipwreck. Um, on the on the main. The, the yeah. shipwreck on the main, yeah. And this is a little bit less, I think, sort of technically impressive in that it doesn't have, like, the fish tank in front of the camera to give, like, live fish uh, mm-hmm. added to the scene. Um, but it's still kind of some people pantomiming being underwater, which is always fun to watch. And then one of them finds treasure amongst a bunch of corpses and they have an ax fight underwater. And one of them gets his air hose cut and the other one steals (laughs) the treasure. Yeah. I I, I saw the ax, the, the, the hose get cut with the ax. And I was like, dang, you weren't kidding about this drama. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) History of a crime. History of a crime was quite good. And yeah, uh, very notable. I thought. Yeah, I would say so too. Uh, um, there were a couple of five-minute or so movies that came from the French and English. Um, maybe the no, yeah, just just the French and English. Um, mm-hmm. And they seemed modern in their editing, honestly, um, and and shot and shot choices and everything like that. Um, there's so much complexity going on in this movie. Yeah, this one in particular is much more kind of narratively ambitious than... I don't want to say everything we've watched up to this point, but it's definitely one of the most 
kind of narratively complex movies that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I'm pretty sure it's the first film that we've watched anyway that uh, kind of uses the medium of film to cu- to show memories, um, hmm. to kind of create a flashback, even though it's it's done in a kind of unconventional way, maybe. A faux diegetic flashback. Yeah. Um, for the listener, the the plot of the of the movie is we see a guy sleeping in bed, and a burglar comes in, murders him, and uh, breaks into his safe and takes all of his money. And then we see that same burglar kind of living living the high life, and he gets arrested and uh, taken away and thrown into into the big house, into the jail. Um, and whilst in jail. Uh, sort of one wall of the room he's in becomes a kind of second screen and we see flashbacks to him uh, sort of having a a happy kind of contented home life as a carpenter who then I didn't really get this by watching it but apparently the intention is we're kind of seeing his descent into alcoholism and he's he's going to the bar and he doesn't want to leave Um, that part of it doesn't come across that clearly um, but it's a, it's attempting to show his sort of his descent into a life of crime a bit. Yeah. Um, and then we see him taken to the uh, the guillotine and beheaded in a pretty. Yeah. They pretty much. I mean, it's an effect, but it's a pretty like just wide shot of a guy getting thrown to a guillotine and beheaded. <laughs> It's pretty prompt too. It's like it's like they walk him up to it, put it down on him, and then he's then his head rolls, and then it's over. Yeah, very, very um, quickly. The reveal of the guillotine is pretty great, though, because there's we kind of see him getting brought up to these two giant doors flanked by guards. Yeah, and then the doors open, revealing a guillotine sort of in the background behind them. Um, Although it does it does look like a kind of wily coyote. Uh, uh, the fake tunnel yes because, it, it because... is yeah <laughs> um but it's still like a dramatic cool visual like it's a it's a very well composed shot yeah yeah um and it's like pretty emotionally engaging too right yeah. like at the beginning of this movie you're upset with this guy um because he killed somebody he stabs a guy in his bed yeah um and then the movie invites you in to empathize with him yeah uh, is the whole idea of the flashback i think Mm -hmm. oh absolutely Um, yeah so you are trying to see things from his perspective and you're seeing his memories and you're you're seeing his justifications and then he dies yeah and that's the end of the movie um yeah pretty grim and dramatic but uh very good yeah like well well done for nanzaka you're really <laughs> attempting to to kind of I think you know this asks a lot more from the audience than most other films from this time. Most of them are very much just like look at a silly thing happen or look at a kind of spooky thing happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is really kind of taking you on a journey a bit. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, I guess after this we can move on to uh some Robert W. Paul slash Walter R. Booth films yeah the english um, yeah because they were doing some similarly narratively ambitious stuff mm-hmm. um did you have anything else to say about this one uh nope i don't think so i think we've we've back covered it um um well so another one that uh that they did 
uh, was a Christmas story adaptation, um, which was called Scrooge or Marley's Ghost. Right. Robert, Robert, uh, or no, uh, Walter R. Booth, right? Yeah. It seems like Walter R. Booth and Robert W. Paul were kind of working together on a lot of stuff. Right. Um, I think, I think Robert W. Paul produced this one. Yeah. Uh, I believe so. Um, Walter R. Booth, it should be noted, also directed The Human Flies, which I was not fond of when we covered oh, it, however many huh. weeks ago that was. Um, he's advanced a lot, he, I think. He really has. I really think he's, he's, uh, he's coming to his own after, after The Human Flies. He's, <laughs> he's really uh, learned a lot, probably from Robert W. Paul, who's been, who's been doing pretty consistently good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I remember back in 1896, uh, back when I was uh, yeah. living in 1896, um, uh, Robert W. Paul was making uh, some actualities that were kind of well-known for their uh, compositional beauty, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's been he's been on the scene for a while now at this point. Five years or so. Yeah. Um, so this this is a adaptation of the ghosts of past present and future bit of you mean a christmas carol by charles dickens oh did i say christmas story you you did say christmas story earlier but also the the past present and future ghosts whole thing otherwise known as a christmas carol is that that's not the whole thing though no but i mean that's the the gist of it like <laughs> um yeah it's a christmas carol it's about screwed to seeing a bunch of ghosts or in this case a single ghost yeah right they had to reduce it somewhat yeah. to be five minutes long um, um i think it was originally about six minutes uh but only about three and a half are surviving at least oh, the, one, the one that, that i watched the the very beginning seems to be a little uh, abridged, mm. maybe. Um, but this movie has a lot of uh, a lot of well thought out cuts in it. Mm-hmm. I think um, similar to the Zeka movie. Um, I mean, I guess it's about a bad man, right? Um, True. Although he, and, he he does get redeemed, right? Uh, God bless us, everyone. Uh, which it says on a on a sign somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's like a lot of there are scenes where like he is outside of a house and then he walks up to the door and he goes in the door and then it cuts to the inside of the house, which is wild. Um, it's crazy that that is wild for this time period. That like <laughs> just that simple of a cut is like whoa. Yeah, um, but it's true. This movie also had at least the the one that I watched had wipes in it, which yeah. seems like a big deal. I guess those are this, original. This is, um, as far as I could see, the first movie with wipe transitions and yeah. it's <laughs> bottom to top. Yeah, <laughs> um, which you wouldn't think that would be the the way that a wipe would happen ordinarily. <laughs> Uh, it's also, uh, as far as I can tell, the first or the earliest known use of actual intertitles to help tell the story. Yeah. Um, Explosion of a Car had, like, a little thing at the end of it that didn't really make any sense. But th- this this seems like intertitles that you're used to seeing in silent films, yeah. definitely. 
um, that's talk. It's describing the different scenes. It says like scene one, where or like scene two, where he sees the past, mm-hmm. and scene three, where this happens. Um, so it's not doing dialogue, but it's it's setting the narrative situation. Yeah. Um, there's a really cool thing, sort of right in the beginning, where Scrooge is ready, getting ready to go to bed in his long shirt and cap. Yeah. Um, where he sort of closes these giant blackout curtains over a window and the blackout curtains being closed creates a nice dark backdrop for the double exposure ghost to appear that's so smart honestly yeah like i've uh, there was there was some more of that that i've been seeing this year from the brits and from Melies is uh very smart usage of that black space needed mm-hmm. for the double exposures. And sometimes like in this transforming a scene from a light scene with light coming in through the windows to blackout curtains and then a, a, a staging ground for the double exposure mm-hmm. effect, yeah. which is really, really great. Up until I think 2012. So fairly recently, this was thought to be the oldest surviving Charles Dickens film or film based on the works of Charles Dickens. Until, in 2012, another film by uh, our old pal George Albert Smith, another Brit, called The Death of Poor Joe was discovered, which is based on a scene from uh, Bleak House, another Charles Dickens story, which I have read, but I do not remember very well. I remember um, you reading that book, but I, it's I very didn't long. read it with you. It's extremely long. The, the biggest thing I remember was there's a whole section about spontaneous combustion, because that was a whole thing at the time huh um but uh, wouldn't that have been better if poor joe died by spontaneous combustion? it would make for a more maybe a more uh i don't know that that might be getting some michael bay territory um because this is <laughs> this is kind of a, a somber sad film about uh a child street sweeper who dies in the cold very dickensian i suppose so yeah um but, uh, yeah, it came out a couple months before Scrooge, um, thereby making it the oldest surviving Charles Dickens film. Mm-hmm. And Dickens, as well as fairy tales, kind of makes sense for yeah. fiction that you would have a handle on mm-hmm. already kind of before watching a silent film. Popularly known stories that people yeah. are more familiar with. Um, jumping back into Walter R. Booth's filmography... Uh, I also watched an over incubated baby, which is kind of a <laughs> that, wacky sci-fi comedy. That movie's, <laughs> yeah, that movie's quite something. Um, <laughs> so there, <laughs> and this seems to be like turn of the century surgery, like a movie that's kind of skewering science. This new institution of like science. medical science. Um, <laughs> A little bit, I guess, yeah. Um, I guess it's, yeah, it's making fun of the concept of incubating a baby. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a comedy. but So so the idea is that um, there is a Professor Bacon's baby incubator. <laughs> um, and it says 12 months growth in one hour. Uh, and <laughs> so it's, you know, a kind of turn of the century huckster kind of situation. Um, and it has a sign that ha- that says before on the left it has a sign that says before use and it's a picture of a of a malnourished baby 
who desperately needs to be incubated. <laughs> um, and then on the right side, there's a sign that says after use. And then there's a drawing of a, a big fat baby. A with jacked a smug baby. Face. <laughs> a jacked baby. A baby that's just shredded. <laughs> that's a shredded baby. Um, and he's got a smug face, kind of like you saw the, um, oh, what's that the called? Enchanted that, the Enchanted Drawing? The Enchanted Drawing, yeah. It's a very similar face, where he's just this kind of like, <laughs> Raised eyebrow. Uh, baby. Yeah, yeah, he's a very, very smarmy baby. Um, and so, uh, and then in the middle is the incubator, and this lady comes up, and she uh, she puts her baby in the incubator, and there is, of course, a, a very quick substitution splice. Um, and she walks away uh, to get, you know, as her photos are developing, or her baby is getting <laughs> uh, 12 months of growth in one hour. Um, there's like a, a kind of like heater under the incubator. It's like an oil lamp. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and then... There, the the assistant or whoever is kind of tending to the incubator and uh, goofs up and spills spills everything and the 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 lightly warm heat turns into a roaring fire underneath the incubator uh, and he he puts the fire out and um, when <laughs> when the baby comes out yeah it's it's more of a small child with a big beard yeah yeah so lot they they super sped the development Um. (laughs) (laughs) everyone knows if you over incubate a baby it becomes uh a toddler with a beard yeah debatably i wasn't sure if it was blackface but nobody seemed to say blackface in relation to this maybe he's just charred um it didn't it didn't look that way to me i did not get that impression from it yeah um, um so yeah he's like for, a he's like a, a seven year old with a beard for a hot second i thought it might be a baby chimpanzee that they brought out which would also be a funny gag um i mean it became a very hairy a hairy child <laughs> yeah yeah who knew that like fire like encourages encourages you to grow hair rather than like burning it off it, you. it only did in the early 1900s that's true. They changed the way that fire works in like a patch in 1905. Yeah. Um, Robert W. Paul made an, uh, directed a, another film this year, uh, The Countryman in the Cinematograph. So important. Well, so amazing. Ve- very meta, this movie. Yes. I mean, it's important in the sense that like we're keeping our eyes out for like interesting stuff that is yeah, happening in of these course. movies. And so this is a a country bumpkin who is uh who is watching a movie you see that you see a projected movie on the right side of the frame and then you see this i think um did they call him a hayseed or was that a different one this was this was british so it i might mean not, not in have... the film yeah um, part of me even wonders if he's meant to be an american that um, would be funny but i don't know i, I think i think uh I think Brits have the same sort of prejudices against people from the country being kind of uh, a bit less yeah. educated and smart. He's probably from Wales. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, kind of a. I don't, a, a I don't know anybody bumpkin. in Wales. I'm not making that uh, making that assumption. You heard it here first. Chris hates Welsh people. 
<laughs> um, well, anyway, it uh, is a so it's a film within a film, <laughs> and uh, which which is real significant, and also this offers some uh, this offers some credence to the idea of people getting scared at these at that Lumiere screening, yeah, of with the arrival of the train, if not. Um, because it maybe happened, which it, you know, there's no primary source to say it did, <laughs> but we know, I, th- I, I imagine we can, we can, we can tell from this that, um, the idea of somebody being scared by a train coming at them in a movie, uh, is in the atmosphere. Yeah. Because it recreates that in, in the film. There are two there are two th- movies that the, the, the country bumpkin character is shown, and one of them is a train movie, and he freaks out when it co- yeah. goes toward the camera, which is uh, is quite good. Yeah. Quite good. It, yeah, it's like, it, it definitely proves that, even if it didn't actually happen at that screening, it was enough of an urban legend at the time for someone else to make a film showing yeah. that yeah um and if we're talking about some more walter r booth slash robert w paul joints um <laughs> so there was this movie called the magic sword which i almost skipped over because i thought it would be just a simple trick film oh, you know i guess I, I guess i did skip over it oh um i mean it is a trick film but I think it is like one of the most d- dense and uh and what like very trick heavy uh, 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 movies that Ooh. has a lot of yeah you want to you want to just pause and watch it maybe? sure <laughs> <laughs> a few moments later wow 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 holy <laughs> shit what a film yeah right that's incredible i loved it I yeah I think I, I I was it was one of the last ones that I watched and and I I was just kind of taken aback by how confident it is and how well done the tricks are yeah uh, yeah not one to miss and very like you said very dense in the amount of effects that it's attempting to do yeah and like a lot of variants too a lot of these mm-hmm. trick films they like have one thing that they do and yeah. then they just do that over and over again. This has a little um, bit of everything. It feels like, yeah, yeah, and I think the 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 visuals are really inventive too. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we just watched it, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can describe what happens. Is that um, like a lot of these old movies? The setup is that a a, a guy is attempting to woo a woman, um, and uh, then basically like a witch appears. Mm-hmm. Um, and conjures like this ghost that is uh, trying to attack him, which uh, distracts, which is long enough to distract the guy. And she tries, the, the witch tries to steal the the princess. Um, he realizes the ruse. He turns around and attacks the witch. And then she just like pieces out on, on a broom, <laughs> on a broom, which is a really cool effect. Yeah. Um, she, she, she's standing on the same plane as everybody and then it just hops to it's a substitution splice that hops to her being gone and replaced with a 
double exposure of her on a broom that's in the same place. So she just kind of jumps onto a broom and then it, it like moves the double exposure off to like up into the sky so that it looks like she's flying away, which is really, really good. Yeah. Um, but whilst, before she goes, uh, she conjures another thing, which is a giant, yeah. uh, which is using more of this kind of big person, double exposure trickery. Um, but he interacts with the set in a really believable way. He kind of crawls up over the wall almost, or like peeks up, kind of puts his hand on, hands on the wall that they're kind of standing on. Yeah, they're like on the the edge of a castle, basically, yeah. and you see the night sky off in the distance. Um, and he reaches up over the edge of the castle and grabs the the princess, and then and picks her up and carries yeah. her away, which is so well done. It's it is so well done. Yeah, um, um, I believe what's happening is that like he is a second exposure. He who's much more zoomed in, he's reaching into a zone which they, which they must have you know kind of lined it up perfectly so that she is there with a substitution splice. She is disappeared from the main plane and then appears as a uh, as like a clump of of cloth and stuff like yeah. a miniature version of herself in the guy's hand in the background and then he picks her up and, and walks away it's so good the amount of coordination that it must have taken to make this movie is kind of hurting my head because they might have had to <laughs> i'm thinking about it and they might have had to do that substitution splice of her disappearing and then go back and do another exposure on that edited film to get the giant in yeah which i didn't want to think about that because if you know, if one sprocket of that film breaks, going back to the camera, it's all shot. They have to start from from scratch. I mean, and the thing that I think that's done so well in this movie is that um, it it all lines up so well. Yeah, you know, a lot of the time these double exposures they're pretty good, but they're, you can tell that they're not perfectly lined up with the other ones. Uh, in the one man band with Melies, like. The, the chairs are kind of floating a little bit. Yeah, you know? there's there's a little bit you can you can tell there's some trickery going on, which you can you can still hear also, but it is right. very. They, but the fact that they have that precision, yeah, you know, um, to have stuff inter- for it to kind of believably interact as it does, yeah, um, is is very impressive for sure. Um, and they go to a they. Oh, what is it? A, a kind of fairy, yeah, uh, guardian angel type, good fairy, whatever, uh, appears and says, "Hey, I'm going to help you rescue your gal." And then here's a sword. She, that's right. She gives him a magic sword that can defeat the magic beings. They go to the witch's cave. Yeah. Um. And then uh, there's just all sorts of just kind of combaty right back the, and forth. the witch disguises the the princess as the witch and disguises herself as the princess they look like they're swapped and then the the guy shows up a sort of flying demon head comes out of the cauldron and flies around a bit yeah it's so cool it's like a head against the black background of the cave with little flappy wings that are just yeah. flying around in circles um there's uh, the cauldron turns into the giant's head, which then turns into a giant skull, 
I think after the the guy stabs it. Um, mm. there's a bit where you think that he's stabbed the, the princess, but then they swap. I'm actually I just watched it. I'm forgetting exactly how that gag worked. But there's a bit where he, <laughs> right. he stabs someone and they it switches and you think that it's like he stabbed right. the wrong person. And, and there's a point where he thinks that the witch is dead and he's walking off with the princess and the witch is about to uh, stab him from with, behind. With the sword, yeah. And then the, <clears throat> the, the, the good fairy appears at the last second and then saves the guy by turning the witch into a carpet. <laughs> <laughs> And then she takes the car. She turns the witch into a carpet. Witch is defeated. She unrolls the carpet. They get onto the carpet and then fly away. And as they fly away, the entire witch cave crumbles and falls. The entire down. witch cave straight up explodes and collapses <laughs> on itself. It's it's incredible. Uh, and then they have a little happy ending shot where the two of them and their friends and the good fairy uh, have a dinner and yeah. party. Um, yeah, I mean, this, I, I was, I was, I was a little blown away by this movie. This is, this is, uh, this is a lot. I mean, Melies is doing a lot of stuff, but this is honestly like rivaling him in terms of its, uh, the amount of effects it's trying to pack into one movie yeah. and how well they're being pulled off. Yeah. I mean, you know, Melies has developed, I think we can determine based on these other people doing trick films and a trick film like this is that Melies has found a style mm-hmm. and he may be kind of sticking to it. Well, we'll see how that goes, but it seems like he, he mainly sticks to a certain style where these people are starting later and creating their own styles that in some ways are more modern visual storytelling than Melies mm-hmm. does. They're definitely kind of like, um, you know, sitting on Melies' shoulders a bit, like Melies is doing a lot yeah. of the, has done a lot of the, the kind of groundwork needed for these other people to even attempt what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, it is sort of you're seeing while well, Melies is kind of very much sticking to relatively the same kind of things that he's been doing the last few years. Other people are kind of taking those things and running with them a little bit further than he is. Hmm. Um. And, uh, well, so speaking of, uh, formal experimentation, Mm. uh, there's another Brit that's going around named James Williamson. Yeah. Um, and he did this movie called The Big Swallow, (laughs) (laughs) which is very, very surreal, honestly. It is true. Um, it is, uh, so, so the movie is silent with, uh, there, there are a couple different versions on YouTube. There's one that's just with music, like most of these, Mm -hmm. but there's one that has a, a description that is from the marketing materials that came with the movie, which is talking about like some supposed dialogue that would be in the scene. Um, and what, so it's a just a medium shot of a guy against a background and uh the supposed dialogue is i won't i won't i'll eat the camera first uh 
um, because he does. It seems like he really doesn't want his picture taken, like like one of those like kinds of kids that just freaks out when you point a camera at them. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> was that you? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, I I definitely relate to that uh, impulse. If nothing else. <laughs> Do you relate to the impulse of wanting to eat a camera rather than... <laughs> I mean, may, maybe when I was a child, yes, but not not mm-hmm. lately. So, uh, he he seems like he doesn't want his picture taken, uh, and he, he kind of gets closer and closer to the camera. The camera zooms in and in and in and in and in, and then uh, it, it, it zooms in on his face and then his mouth, and it kind of refocuses so that you can see his mouth in such, like, extreme detail. Uh, You see all the pores and everything. And then he opens his mouth, and and then it zooms further into the blackness of his mouth, and he consumes the camera. He has eaten the camera. Well, Um, to the point that we then see a camera and cameraman fall into the darkness... Into the void yeah. of this man's maw. <laughs> uh, and then he retreats, having swallowed the camera. Yeah, and he goes like, ooh, yes, very good. Yeah. Tasty. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess this means that James Williamson invented Vore. <laughs> yeah, wow, father of Vore. We really are going on the explicit uh, one on this episode. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but this, this is like, I mean, this is, there's a lot of silliness that's happening in these early movies, but this one is another level of, like, strange silliness that is happening, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's also like the, um, uh, like the Countryman and the Cinematograph, uh, pretty meta as well. Yeah. Um, because it starts out from the perspective of the camera and then zooms back out from outside of that camera because you see the camera and the camera and tumble into the abyss. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's got like a kind of combination of like literal in-scene camera and non-diegetic yeah. quote-unquote camera you know yeah just like audience point of view outside of yeah it's it's very you can't really think about it too hard because then your head will start to hurt <laughs> um but it does it does feel like more and more movies are kind of starting to acknowledge a little bit of like what cinema is or like what kind of goes into it like you know we see in this like we see a cameraman sort of appear like we've seen cameraman on film before but this is sort of explicitly yeah. acknowledging like yeah there's a guy filming this right now um i think it might actually it might be a um a photograph camera that has like the hmm. hood over it and everything oh he's interesting gonna, yeah i'm not sure it only goes by in a flash yeah really. um right i guess that would make it slightly less meta um yeah so you're it, right it'd make hmm. the the sort of film point of view totally separate yeah, let's um, call it a film camera. That's more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Williamson is doing a lot of interesting stuff this year. Yeah. He's making some mm-hmm. good movies. And I yeah. think he didn't start this year, but he hadn't really done anything notable up until this point. Well, he did Attack on a China mission. Oh, that's right. He did. So, yeah, yeah. He's, he's continuing that trend then. He's doing more kind of 
I mean, not really with the Big Swallow, but with his other movies, kind of his more uh, kind of grounded sort of uh, multiple scene dramas. Yeah. Although before we go to that, I will say that uh, if we're talking, before we leave the concept of uh, meta-ness, um, <laughs> meta-textuality, sorry, um, that uh, some other Brits that are in the zone right now are Mitchell and Kenyon. Uh, who are some sort of taking up the mantle of actualities from the Lumieres. Mm-hmm. They're just filming a lot of street scenes and that kind of thing. Um, but one kind of big difference is that in Lumiere movies, uh, the camera is... They're, they're cinema verite. Like The camera is uh, not often acknowledged, and it's supposed to be just documenting an event. But in basically every Mitchell and Kenyon actuality uh the people were actually encouraged to just stand at the camera and stare at it um and there's always like in all of their documentaries of street scenes the lower third of the screen is taken up by children street urchins one bbc person called them Uh, i mean what else are you gonna call them they they are (laughs) they are classical street urchins to a t And they're just, like, smiling and looking at the camera and, like, talking to each other and and having a good old time, which apparently they actually encouraged because part of Mitchell and Kenyon's whole thing was uh, shooting movies in in the day, developing them, and then showing them to that community later that night so they could see themselves on film. Mm. Uh, And so that was part of the the appeal uh, of it. Uh, but anyway, back to James Williamson. I mean, I got more to say about Mitchell and Kenyon if you want to stay on them for a bit. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, one thing about their movies is uh, a lot of them are on YouTube on the BFI, British Film Institute, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And they have voiceover. Um, like a contemporary voiceover just kind of giving context for each one, which is yeah. super interesting and really kind of makes them a lot more interesting to watch because you're getting all of the kind of contextual information as to why, you know, like what they're depicting or sort of what kind of the backstory is with Mitchell and Kenyon and how they got started or all different things like that. So very, uh, very educational. Um, And uh, yeah, they reminded me a lot of kind of like portraits more than I feel like if like, Lumiere films are to photographs are like uh, are landscape, like they're very sort of like here's a place. Uh-huh. Whereas Mitchell and Kenyon films feel very much like portraits. They're like here are these people, um, and they're just kind of staring right da- right into the lens, um, and kind of interacting with each other and like kind of they're interacting with the camera a little bit more. Um, it feels more real. It feels more like actual life. In yeah, a way. you really get a sense of like the personalities of the people on screen in these. Um, yeah. A lot of them are like working class British people um, from different cities and towns. And yeah, they just have so much, so much character, like the, the street urchins that we, <laughs> we just mentioned. I mean, there's one that he's, he's got like his hands, his thumbs kind of hooked into a waistcoat and he's got it. And he's got his little, hat, how iconic he's got his little hat and he's, he's kind of posing for the camera a little bit. And you see all these other kids kind of running around and, like, looking at the camera and then moving on. And he's just there just posing with his thumbs in his waistcoat. Um, and this kid is, like, I don't know, nine years old. It's it's great. Um, 
this kid is clearly very uh very streetwise i get the sense <laughs> um this this kid is running around picking pockets um and yeah there's just like you know there's dock workers there's like people coming off of ships there's um it's all kinds of stuff um but yeah you really get uh, a very good a lot of personality from them i think yeah i only watched a couple of these because um uh because they are a lot of them very similar yeah um they're just people walking in front of the camera and mugging for the camera uh <laughs> but um the uh the commentary does get add a lot mm-hmm. um and so i do want to go back at some point and just i know there's like a dvd that is probably only available in england um that is the complete um Oh my god! I was going to say Mitchell and Webb, <laughs> Mitchell and Kenyon, uh, the complete like Mitchell and Kenyon collection that I think these descriptions and and stuff are from. Yeah, uh, I, that'd be really cool DVD to look through. You know, yeah, I'd like to sit down and watch all of this stuff, but not really when I'm in like a cinema mood. Mm. You know, yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's just historically very interesting. According to Source Wikipedia, uh, Mitchell and Kenyon have the uh, the largest like surviving library of uh, actuality films, which is wow. which is pretty cool. Um, but getting back to uh, narrative stuff, yeah. Um, James Williamson also made a film called Fire! Exclamation <laughs> point. Yeah, and this is another in that group of five minute or so movies that just like blow my mind as yeah. far as technical uh composition prowess and editing prowess um yeah this one is is very very ambitious very slickly made um but in a very different way than we're seeing from George Melies um like it's not super big on effects or anything it's much more about kind of staging and and editing yeah. Um, and it's much more grounded. It's using a lot more kind of... All of Melies' movies use these kind of elaborate painted backdrops and sets. Whereas this is, I think, only shot with maybe one act, real set. The rest of the time it's kind of using real locations, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know... So it's a, it's a firefighting movie, um, yeah. which was a genre back then. Um, but it, uh, it's got like a, well, so the main, the main set is a house that's catching on fire and it's actually the same house that he used to shoot attack on a China mission. Just Um, an an abandoned house. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Somewhere in England. Yeah. Um, and I was just so, so impressed by this movie and honestly, like, uh, really engaged i thought the soundtrack helped with that a lot um it made me really think about how how important the soundtrack is in a lot of these movies that sometimes we're just missing uh mm, yeah because they're, they're being played completely silently because uh, i think that, but anyway when i watched this i was you know i wasn't ever like concerned for the people who were in the fire but it i was swept up in it honestly yeah um it's got a lot of energy to it. Um, 
and you know it's interesting that you make that Melies con- uh, 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 comparison because of all of the uh, more complex movies that we've seen, this one really isn't big on effects at all, and it is just storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and drama, honestly. Um, so basically, what happens is. Uh, there's a house that catches on fire. There's a guy that sees it and runs to the fire station. Uh, they get they get the equipment ready. Um, you see like different scenes for each of these things. Basically, uh, they get the equipment ready. They put it all up on their horse and buggies. Then a shot outside where they ride the horses uh, from the firehouse to the the burning house. Uh, it cuts from that inside of the house where you see a guy who lives there trying to deal with the fire in his room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Which is just a real fire that's around yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he passes out from the smoke inhalation and you think like, oh my god, oh no, you know? And then there's a window in the back of his room and then you just see the window get busted through and there's a firefighter on a ladder who... Uh, who comes in with a hose and puts out some of the fire and picks him up and brings him out of the window. Uh, and then it cuts to outside of the window where he's coming down the, uh, the ladder and, uh, he, uh, the, 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 the firefighter brings him down the ladder and they do various other firefightery things, uh, in this outside scene, they spray water and there are other people who flee the building and uh, there's one person who uh, jumps out of that same window after they have set up a, a, a blanket for him to fall on and all held it up in that classic way. Um, right, which is just a real stunt. It's just a single shot of them getting a blanket true. out, pulling it taut, and a guy jumping out of a second or third story window and landing in it. Which, I mean, I guess it's... Maybe they used real equipment. Maybe they worked with the fire department, like um, modern movies uh, have cozy contracts with the military to be able to use <laughs> use all their equipment. I mean, um. <laughs> they. I feel like they probably did. There's definitely a sense of kind of authenticity to this, of like, yeah, the big, you know, fire carriage, horse-drawn fire carriage rolling down the street, mm-hmm. and all the hoses and ladders and stuff. I mean, it it um, you know, all of this sort of spectacle of this movie is done in camera. Like, uh, you yeah, know, we see kind of smoke pouring out of the the house from outside. Um, we see, you know, the the guy jumping out the window. Like, um, it's a it's a pretty. It feels very impressive and very um, not fantastical, but definitely kind of just big and exciting. Yeah. Um, but it's all it's all practical stuff, which is pretty cool. Um, and I think it's maybe the the first real instance of something I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of as we go on, which is like big, elaborate, crazy stunt work. Hmm. Um, I know definitely once we get into the 1910s and 1920s, that's going to be a, a, a much bigger deal. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would say that this film's shyness away from the, uh, special effects and more interest in more of the practical goings on in front of the camera makes it feel like 
probably the most realistic drama that mm-hmm. I've seen so far. Yeah. Um, there were there were effective parts about the the criminal movie, the Zeka criminal movie, um, but this one is yeah, this one just feels so real, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> um, yeah, parts of it even feel like kind of a um, almost like a bringing together the actuality genre and the sort of spectacle narrative genre. Right. Um, because when we see the 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 firemen getting ready at the fire station and sort of rushing to the scene, it's all, I assume, real firefighters uh, as opposed to actors because it's all done on, on an actual street. It's There's there's no set for that. Um, right. I imagine Shot that on they, location. <laughs> yeah. I imagine they just went to a, a firehouse and was like, hey, there's no fires right now. Do you mind just like doing your thing uh so we can film it and make a make a moving picture about it <laughs> and they said moving pictures yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said what <laughs> um and so yeah it feels like it has that sort of groundedness and that realism that we get from the documentary actuality movies um in addition to the kind of spectacular narrative stuff yeah, I like their hat. I like their hats too. The it hats cool to stuck out to me, like chromed legionnaire helmets. Yeah, they looked almost Spartan-y. Yeah, <laughs> I did not realize that old English firefighters wore big chrome <laughs> helmets like that. Um, but they look nice. Look, yeah. They look right on camera. Let me tell you. Um, um, there were a couple others from Williamson that were pretty cool, but definitely not quite as impressive as that one. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, stop, stop, thief was a nice chase movie, but it mm-hmm. was a, uh, and it had some like kind of continuous action between um, shots. Yeah, although it did seem a little, uh, it hadn't figured out the whole screen the, direction. The whole... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had that in my notes. <laughs> they hadn't really figured out that when someone's running one direction on screen and we cut to another angle, they should be running the same direction. That's that stuff's all messed up. But uh, but they, you know they, they they tried. They hadn't figured it out yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate a, the effort. It's a slight movie that feels like um, some of some more simplistic movies, but because it has so many different scenes mm-hmm. in it uh, where they're running through, uh, I think it's. A little notable. Yeah, it feels like the first real kind of like chase I've seen in a film, as opposed to like someone yeah. just kind of running across the screen and then getting caught, like right. the sprinkler right. sprinkled or something. Like this yeah. is kind of different scenes that are happening during a chase, which is very fun. Um, would you like to move on to the Americans? I suppose the Americans. We can talk the, the about them consistently... too. The consistently most boring I have of all. Little to no notes about the American films that I watched for 1901. <laughs> um, so I think we can we can probably run through them pretty quick. Blaze right through it. Sure. Well, the main the main guy uh, in America right now is Edwin S. Porter. Um, he's uh, working for Edison. Um, He's going to be his most notable movie is going to be coming out in two years, which is the mm. Great Train Robbery. 
Um, but right now he's uh, he's working up his chops, uh, <laughs> making a lot of movies for the Edison Company. Um, and he was, prior to making movies, <laughs> a projectionist like me. Ooh. <laughs> um, he was actually a projectionist at this place on West, West 23rd Street called Eden Musee. Oh. Um, and it was a place that had wax figures, and it was one of the earlier motion picture houses, and it had, this is just, the, all that the description says, a chamber of horrors in the basement. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, so at the Eden Musee, he showed uh, Edison Films, um, and he arranged programs for them, uh, and eventually he started working for Edison. Um, and he, uh, at some point later was actually put in charge of Edison's movie company. Um, but he made a couple of, uh, a couple little movies this year. Um, do you have any, any that stands out to you? Not, not really. (laughs) I mean, the, the main thing that stood out about the Edwin S. Porter movies I watched were kind of how, how simplistic they were. They mm-hmm. they feel like kind of little novelty acts, as opposed yeah. to what the Brits and the French are doing. Like, I mean, especially with some of this more complex stuff that's yeah. happening. Um, they feel like movies that uh, kind of you would watch in a um, uh, a watch what am I call it? The is it zoetrope? I'm the mutoscope. Yes, mutoscope. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um. Like, single scenes, just kind of like, eh, look at this, hey, eh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I wasn't really feeling them. I was kind of, I watched a few, but n- honestly, none really stuck out to me. Yeah. One one kind of notable one is uh, Kansas Saloon Smashers. True, true. Uh, Kansas Saloon Smashers is, is probably the most notable one. Uh, which we talked in the news segment last week about Carrie Nation who was a uh, a big figure in the temperance movement, in the growing temperance movement. Um, and that year, uh, she had kind of made a name for herself by going through a bunch of saloons and just destroying them because she thought that drinking was evil. Um, and uh, these... Edwin S. Porter, along with Edison, made a couple of movies that kind of mock her um, because they don't like her point of view, I guess. Hey, um, we like alcohol. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a little less evident in Kansas Saloon Smashers than the follow-up movie, which is called Why Mr. Nation Wants a Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little less subtle, I would say. Yeah. So Kansas Saloon Smashers, like you were saying, very simple movie. It's a locked-off shot of a bar. A few people are uh, drinking at the bar and having a good time. Uh, it has a joke, I guess. I didn't. This didn't scan to me in the 21st century, but a stereotypically Irish man who just looked to me like a guy with a top hat. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, he walked up. One of those stereotypical Irishmen with the top hat. <laughs> I guess he walked up to the bar. The The joke is that he walked up to the bar instead of with a glass. He walked up with a bucket and asked them to fill the bucket <laughs> with beer. 
Um, anyway, that happens for about, like, 40 seconds of the minute. And then 40 seconds in, uh, Carrie Nation bursts in with her group of temperance people. And they just run behind the bar and start smashing all the bottles. With? And then the... I mean, Carrie Nation has an axe in this movie, which is pretty rad. Hmm. Um, honestly, for a movie meant to, like, mock Carrie Nation, it makes her kind of, uh, kind of, like, this, like, intense scary like powerful figure where she just like busts into a saloon and destroys it with a hatchet not an axe a hatchet <laughs> um and it i don't know it's it it's uh it's at least entertaining i guess in that sense mm-hmm. um I mean, yeah she smashes that saloon <laughs> true to the name yeah uh and why Mr. Nation wants a divorce is uh, a movie that shows her, while she's off doing her temperance stuff, her uh, stay-at-home husband, I guess, like, puts the troublesome kids to sleep. And uh, and and it's, like, basically saying that uh, she... Sh- I mean, I think it's probably implying that she shouldn't be out of the house and that she should be doing this stuff. Um, but he is so overwhelmed... Uh, from dealing with the the unruly children that he takes a swig of alcohol and oh. just as he does his wife comes in and gets mad at him and uh uh comes in the door and um uh one of the kids was misbehaving and so he has to spank the kid and so in a in a kind of twist at the end of it uh his wife sees him drinking alcohol and so she spanks him and then puts him to bed <laughs> Um, a another interesting uh, Edwin S. Porter movie was Execution of Oh man, how do you how do you say his name? Leon. Oh, Chogas. Chogas, yeah. Execution of Leon Chogas with Panorama of Auburn Prison. Did you watch this one? Uh, I did not know. Ah, um. It's pretty simple. Uh, so what? As we mentioned in the news segment, the president was assassinated this year, and William S. Porter, or Edwin S. Porter, um, wanted to uh, film the execution, uh, but the prison said he could not do that, um, and so he just filmed the panorama outside of the prison and then recreated the execution in a fairly uh, uh, realistic way. Hmm on set um so they have they it's a panorama and then you see the guy that kind of looks like him getting like pulled up like like walked up to an electric chair um and then uh they strap him in and then his body pulses three times the electricity and then he's dead um yikes and yeah i think a lot of the people watching this on youtube with the five million views which is a lot for something like this um think that it's an actual Mm-hmm. execution it it could have been but it's not um if Melies had made it he would have been a ghost and like danced around <laughs> afterwards really goes to show his style in, in this yeah. situation his sense of style and did you see the pan pan american exposition by night uh maybe um 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I have the so, Americans are. Boring. I'm sorry. I have so so little enthusiasm for all the all the Porter movies this year. But yeah, it's yeah. I get you. Um, I mean, yeah, all the ones I watched. I mean, seemed pretty samey. I mean, Kansas Saloon Smashers did kind of stick out in that it was kind of uh, commenting on current events, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah, they they all they just seem so much less ambitious and kind of impressive yeah. to me. Fair enough. Let's skip him. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the last movie that I have on here is another American movie, but it's it's Fre- uh, Frederick S. Armitage, who is another rising director, and he made this one for American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, and it's. Notable in that it is the first time lapse. Mm. Um, this I did. It's see. called yeah. It's called the demolishing and building up of the Star Theater, um, and it is really just a. It's 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 a shot from about a block away of a of a stage theater, I believe, uh, that is being mm-hmm. demolished, and it. Uh, it takes probably a week and a half or something like that, judging by how many times the sun goes around. Um, and you, it's pretty neat because you see that classic um, uh, time lapse of cars and people streaking as they move through the the street uh, in in the time lapse motion. Uh, but yeah, they just take the building apart uh, yeah. uh, layer by layer from the top down, um, and then it's a building construction site. But it's neat. And there's a part where a caterpillar gets stuck on the lens for a few seconds. <laughs> um, it is very neat. And it's it's also something like time lapses, for whatever reason, are something I very much associate with, like, the 90s. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very cool seeing a time lapse from 1901 because it, it is such a... Just, like, formal formally not really something I'm used to seeing from old, old film like this. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Americans boring. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that about does it. Pretty, uh, pretty eventful, pretty fun year of of film. Yeah. Uh, and next year, next episode is going to be a real doozy. I'm excited. Oh boy! Yeah. yeah. I've got a Blu-ray actually. Oh damn! I don't. I took it. I took it from work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can get a nice HD uh oh yeah. YouTube of it somewhere. Uh well, oh wait, uh what's your favorite movie of this oh, year, Glenn? Uh good question. You know what? I I would have probably said uh Bluebeard. But you know what? The Magic Sword was my favorite. The Magic Sword really was uh, a a great time. Yeah. Um I have a hard time picking between Fire and The Magic Sword. Fire is also very good. Two very opposite directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really impressed with all of these five-minute long, complex narratives. Um, uh, I don't know. I'll say Fire, since you said Magic okay. Sword. Very good. <laughs> well, that's about it for this uh, long episode. Mm. Um, gross. Uh, let's wrap it up. We can cut and... out. We can cut out the several minutes of me just watching Magic Sword. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's it. 
Again, I forgot to mention at the top of the show that there's a YouTube playlist you can watch with all of the movies that we just talked about. It's just um, a thing that you say at the end of the show. It's fine. No, but it's, like, important because you might want to watch along, you know? Oh, true, true. Well, well, yeah. Oops. Um, anyway, uh, you, there's a YouTube playlist. We have a Twitter that we don't use. Uh, and uh, you can watch along with us. Uh, send us your movie suggestions if you want. Uh, but we know what we're going to watch next, to- next yep. week. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> They'll laugh at us and call us all buffoons. You're gonna be a star, my sweet balloon.